Well, it's nice to have some uh, guests visiting with us tonight, uh, out, out of town and around town for uh, the baptism. It's um, a great opportunity to celebrate that together, and we're glad to be able to accommodate that. That's a very special event that uh, certainly any family member would want to participate and uh, be a part of, so glad that that was made possible tonight. And thank you for coming tonight. Uh, I know what this weekend is, and uh, I know it's an extended time off for many of you, and a beautiful day like today, it'll be very easy to desire to be someplace else, but I'm glad that you're with us tonight. You've made a priority to be here in God's house. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. What I'd like to do this evening is um, just kind of speak to all of us and think in terms of what is your ultimate goal? What is your goal in life as a believer? You could probably say that in a number of different ways, and, and a number of different things might come to your mind, scripture passages, uh, things that maybe the Lord is working in your life right now, and you think these are goals, these are things that I am asking the Lord to help me with, areas of growth or encouragement or strength. But when it comes right down to it, if we had to simply put it, what is the ultimate for the believer? For instance, uh, you could say in a basketball game, let's say, there are maybe a variety of goals. Well, we need to play good defense. We need to shut down this guy on the offense. Uh, we need to get more fast break points and get the ball out quickly and down the court. Uh, we need to rebound and make sure you put a body on your guy and box out and rebound. And, and so these are goals that, that a coach might go over and say, here, here are goals that we have in this game and let's work hard to execute these goals. But the bottom line goal of that basketball game is Score more points than the other team. That's pretty simple. How do you score more points than the other team? All those other things may be a part of that goal, but they are lesser goals, as it were, but necessary in that they achieve the ultimate goal. So think of your life as a believer. And if you had to boil it down to what is the ultimate goal for a believer. Just like it would be score more points than the other team, what would you say? Well, I think the Bible does give us that ultimate goal. And I think we read of it here in Ephesians chapter 4. In the context of this passage, Ephesians 4, it's speaking about life in the church. Paul has spent three chapters on describing what it is to be a follower of Christ, what it is to be in the body of Christ, and what that means. He now is instructing them, beginning in verse 1, about a person's walk in regard to that. How do we live this out, this truth? And one of the things that he points out that should happen in the context of the community of the church, well, let me just show you how this, how this lays out. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, he's talking about things that go on inside the church as a community. Beginning in, chapter, in verse 17 of chapter 4, he talks about things that go on outside of the church. So inside of the church, there should be unity, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. 
outside of the church, when you're living among the world, there should be uniqueness. But both of those things, unity and uniqueness, there's something that ties them together. There's this ultimate goal of the believer that if this is happening, that will take place. There will be unity in the church and there will be uniqueness outside of the church. What is this thing? Well, ultimately, it's found in verse 13. Let's get some context. Verse 11, he says of Jesus that he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, and they are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ until we all what? Attain. He's saying, here's a goal. This is what's going on inside the church until we come to this goal. We attain, what is it? The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In this context of the church and speaking truth to one another, Paul says, here's the thing we're looking to attain. Unity of the faith, that's teaching of, of the Scripture, until we all come to maturity in Christ. We, we attain this measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. We would put it this way. The ultimate goal for the believer in Ephesians chapter 4 is this, that you and I would be like Christ. Christ likeness, as you've heard it said. That would be an ultimate goal for the believer. In other words, God's goal for you is not self-fulfillment. There's a lot of teaching out there today about that, that, that God's made you for this great purpose, and so your purpose in life is that God wants to satisfy this purpose. But the purpose is never defined. Here, the purpose is to be like Jesus Christ. That is the goal. God's goal is not simply self-fulfillment. God's goal for you is not simply to give you a greater capacity to cope with your problems, that, that somehow by going to church and even reading the Bible, I gain some good principles for relating to people and handling family issues or interpersonal conflicts. God's goal for you, though not bad, is certainly not just to have a, a good home, 2.5 kids, right, in the suburb, uh, you know, the manicured lawn, um, all, all of that, that that people describe as the American dream. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that's evil, but, but that's not God's goal for you. God's goal is for you is that you would be conformed to the image of his son. That you would be like Jesus Christ. Because then, when that happens, you will glorify or give glory to God. It will, it will directly point people back to God if that's going on in us. And that's the reason all things exist is for God's glory. So if this is God's goal, Christ-likeness, 
What is it? How would you put that into words? What does that look like? Sometimes we use this terminology and we talk about it, but we really have no idea when it comes down to concrete describing it. Simply put, Christ-likeness is spiritual growth in one's life where the believer begins to display the attitudes and actions of Jesus Christ. Where I, as a believer in my everyday life, I begin to actually display involuntarily, as it were, the attitudes that Jesus would, would reflect and his activity toward other people. We sometimes refer to this in other terms. It's sometimes referred to as progressive sanctification. How many of you have ever heard that term? All right? That's just to keep you awake tonight, all right? Progressive sanctification. It's progress in being sanctified. And we would say to be fully sanctified is to look like Jesus Christ, to have his attitude and actions in life. And the reason we call it Christ-likeness is because Jesus is the perfect model for us. He's the perfect model of what it looks like to perfectly be sanctified or set apart to God entirely. So therefore, God's goal for us is to be like Christ. And therefore, you and I, as a believer, should strive to be like Jesus Christ. Now, that oftentimes sounds trite and cliche, doesn't it? Like the little bracelets that people used to wear, what would Jesus do? And what I'm saying is that's not a bad question to ask, but it needs to be more than just a cliche on a bracelet. It ought to be, what does it really look like if Christ is being formed in me? So tonight, I want to answer three questions with regard to this. I'm sorry I don't have any slides for you tonight. I couldn't get to those, so you're going to have to just pay real close attention to what I'm saying. I want to answer the question, is it really possible to be like Christ? Is that possible? It seems like a dream far and away. Two, if it is possible, how does it happen? What's the process? What does that look like? And finally, how would I know if this goal is achieved? How do I know if it's going on in my own life? How would it look different for me? So three things I want to cover tonight is the possibility of being like Christ, the process of becoming like Jesus Christ, and finally, the product. What does that look like? So we're going to look at a variety of passages, as you can imagine, tonight to explore these questions and answer them together. And my goal tonight is that when we all leave here, at least you'll be able to say, I know what God wants for me even this week. And here's how to engage in that process. And here's how I'll know if it's really taking place in my life. So let's pray and ask God to help us see these things. Lord, would you give us your mind tonight and help me to be clear I pray that everyone seated before me tonight would relish this thought of being like the Lord and serving Him in every capacity and every opportunity they find themselves in this week. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. To begin with tonight, I want us to look at the possibility of becoming more like Jesus Christ. Is this really possible? And for that, I want you to look at another New Testament book written by Paul, the book of Galatians. 
being like Christ, as I said, often sounds like a pipe dream. It's this lingo we throw around, but is it really possible? We all know that we're going to fall short of that goal, and so it, it becomes disheartening at times. But I want you to note that this was something very much near and dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul as he dealt with believers, young believers, that he led to Christ and wanted to see them grow. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. If you know anything about the book of Galatians, um, the Galatians believers are misdirected. Uh, Paul had come and established a church there through preaching the gospel, and people had come after him called the Judaizers, and they had taught a different gospel. They said, if you really want to be pleasing to God, you need to not only have faith in Jesus, but you need to add to it these Old Testament mosaic laws not only for your salvation to truly be justified before God, but also for your sanctification to really be spiritual. And so this is how you you fulfill God's will, by adding these things to what you're already doing. And so Paul's addressing that in chapter 4, specifically beginning in verse 8. We'll get a little context there. And what he's saying is, is don't slip into this trap. And let me just preface this by saying this. Sometimes we slip into this trap thinking, okay, my goal is Christ-likeness, so Christ-likeness is what I do. So let me add something to what I'm doing so that I look more like Jesus. And Paul is trying to steer clear of that, and he's saying, that's not the right thing. And notice how he addresses this. Look at verse 11 of Galatians 4. Paul tells them, I'm afraid... I may have labored over you in vain. And now he's referring back to the time of preaching the gospel to them, but he's saying, you have kind of gone after this notion of the false teachers and what they're saying, and he's saying, I'm afraid that I've, I've, I've worked all of this in vain because you're coming up with a different understanding of what it means to be in Christ. He says, if this is your conclusion, some sort of external observance to truly be sanctified and set apart, then he says, I've labored in vain. So what was his goal? Well, look down at verse 19. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, would you ever sit down with a new believer that has just come to Christ and you would say, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help you so that Christ would be formed in you. Does that sound strange? The word formed here, as Paul uses it, is actually a medical term. And it's one that described the development of a child in the womb up until the point of birth. And it was talking about, you know, even back then they knew about the formation of a child in the womb until it was brought to birth. And Paul is saying, here's my goal with you. I want you to develop just almost like a little child would, and you're growing, but you're being formed in this way to come to maturity. And he describes it as Christ being formed in them that this was the essence, as it were, of Christianity to Paul to, to teach the truth of the gospel that Christ would be formed in people. George Whitfield wrote this in his journal. 
He said that they who know anything of religion know it is the vital union with the Son of God. It is Christ formed in the heart. So Whitfield, the great preacher, says, here's, here's actually what's going on in your Christian life. It's Jesus Christ formed in your heart, something going on inside in your union with him that will reflect itself outside. But this is the essence. When a man or woman becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, Christ is being formed in them. That man or woman begins to think as Jesus Christ thought, to feel as Christ feels, to value what Christ values, and to act and behave as Christ would behave. And if that's never going on, and there's never any circumstance under which that is the case, then you have to ask, is Christ really in that person? Because this is the goal. It's the essence of what it means to be a believer. So becoming more like Christ was Paul's aim for these believers in Galatia. He says, this is what I want Christ to be formed in you. But not only that, becoming more like Christ was Paul's goal for his ministry wherever he went. Look at Colossians. Book of Colossians in the first chapter. And Paul says, here's his goal for these believers in Colossae. Look at verse 24 of Colossians 1. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known Verse 26, it was the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And now look what he says in verse 28. Him, this Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we pre may present everyone, what? Mature in Christ. I think what he's referring to is, I came and preached the gospel to you, that Christ would be in you, this hope of glory, and we keep teaching you about Christ so that everyone is presented mature or like Jesus Christ. All that to say that the possibility of you actually being like Jesus Christ is true if you're a genuine believer. It's what God wants to do in you. You must recognize this possibility. It is in you. Now, around April of each year, 200 college football athletes are chosen in the NFL draft. They have the big draft night, and they do the first round, and it's all a big deal, and they go all the way down through, I think there's seven or eight rounds that they do, and they choose these athletes. But you think about these athletes. These are young men who are in high school were all-state athletes. I mean, they, they were the top of their class. It was obvious. There was a uniqueness in them. Then they received a scholarship to a college, uh, 
a blue chip college, right, known for sports and an athletic program, and they were these high-profile recruits that went to colleges. They made the team, and when they made the team and the college course, they became All-American, or they had some other kind of accolade after them to gather attention. And so now here it is on draft night, and they are about ready to become professional athletes, but I want to remind you that these young men that become these professional athletes, while it is partly a matter of working hard, it's also a matter that there's something in them that other people don't have. Try as I wanted to and, and, and really had a desire to play in the NBA, it was never going to happen because it wasn't in me. These guys on draft night, there really is something in them, and it's been evidenced all along their career as they competed against people on their level. Well, maybe tonight you're feeling like an aspiring football or basketball player, and you're saying, well, yeah, I want to be like Jesus Christ, but I just don't think it's in me. I often fail. I wasn't like Jesus in the car ride on the way here, if you'd only heard our conversation. I wasn't like him today. I can't do that. And I just want to encourage you tonight. I want to encourage you with this. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 and verse 28, familiar verses. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined, the word is, is orizo. It, it has to do with the horizon. When you look out at the horizon, there's a boundary where the sky stops and the horizon is there. That's the boundary. And it's saying that, that God has set this boundary. This is his predetermined boundary. This is what he's going to do. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. In order that his son, Jesus, would be the firstborn or the preeminent one among many who are like him. What God is saying is this. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God says, I have set you on a path and there is a goal that you will reach. And that is, I'm bringing everything into your life in order for this good purpose to make you like my son, because my goal in the end is that Jesus Christ will be the preeminent one, and there will be many who are like him, fashioned in his likeness, to display the glory of God. And God says, that's an indisputable fact that's going to happen. Now, maybe you're here tonight and you say, well... If God says that's what's going to happen, then why even try? I mean, why don't I have that argument in the car on the way home, too? I mean, God's going to make this happen, so I'll just sit back and let him do it to me and, and see it out in the end. 
And if that's your attitude, then I would question, is Christ in you? Is he really in you? Because if he is, you know your heart longs for this. I really, really want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and honor him. And my encouragement to you is, friend, God's going to make that happen. Well, what's the process? How does that happen? Romans 8 tells us a little bit of that. God actually uses circumstances and even difficult circumstances in the context of this verse that God uses those things in order to fashion us and chisel us, as it were, into this image. And those are often things that we don't like. But God says, I'm using them to show you about yourself. Maybe I'm using them to reveal where you're not like Jesus Christ. But there's more to the process than simply that. There's the possibility of becoming more like Jesus Christ. But this process, I think, is most clearly defined for us in 2 Corinthians 3. So go to 2 Corinthians. Again, probably a familiar text, but maybe you haven't thought of it in these ways. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, we read this. And we all, okay, let's, let's think about what we just read. Who's writing this? Apostle Paul, to whom is he writing? Corinthians, they are believers, right? It's a church at Corinth. Paul includes himself in this. So he says, we, you Corinthian believers and me, we all. So what he's talking about, every believer, Every believer has before them what we're about to read. We all what? Verse 18, we all with unveiled face. He's saying if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have an unveiled face. Well, what is that all about? Well, in context, look at verse 12. Paul writes and says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What was being brought to an end? Well, the glory of that when Moses went and he met with the Lord in the tent of meeting, it says that his face shone and glowed so much that the people couldn't look on him. And so they said, Moses, put a veil over your face. And that glory that was reflected in the face of Moses was the glory of his meeting with God. But that glory would diminish over time to where he didn't always have to wear the veil. But it's saying when he came out, having been with God and meeting with him in that glory, the veil was over the face of Moses so that the people didn't see that. In fact, that's also mentioned, look at verse 15. He says, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, what's that referring to? That's the law, the Old Testament law. He says, a veil lies over their hearts. And he's thinking in particular of Jewish people that were under that old covenant with Moses. And he says, even today, when they read Moses and what he wrote, it's like there's a veil over their hearts and they can't see the glory. So now go to verse 18. It says, but we all, who? Believers, Jews and Gentiles, with an unveiled face. 
we behold what? The glory of the Lord. Now, a believer can see the glory of the Lord. The question is, where do we see his glory? Well, remember what I read in verse 15? It says, unbelievers to this day, when Moses is read those scriptures, the veil is over their heart and they can't see it. But now a believer through faith in Christ, because Christ is in you, when you read the scripture, what do you see? The glory of the Lord. You see what God has been doing from creation through fall to ultimate redemption. We see God's plan. The old covenant people should have seen it in the Mosaic law even, but they didn't. Now we do see it. And let me confirm that for you. Look at chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. He says in verse 3, and even if our gospel is what? Veiled. Here's this idea again of a veiled. It is veiled only to those who are perishing. There are people who still can't see the glory of God through the scripture. Verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of who? Okay, so what specific glory do we see in the scripture? It's the glory of Christ. It's the person of Christ. It's what God had planned to do in him from the very beginning. Look down at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness in the beginning, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you open your Bible or you read the Bible or we come together and we understand God's word, what are we seeing? It's the glory of Jesus Christ. It's who he is. It's what he's done. It's knowing him in this way. We open the Bible to see the glory of God himself, and we see that most directly in the person of Jesus Christ. All right, so let me ask you this. You read your Bible. When you read your Bible, what are you looking for? I, I don't mean, you know, sometimes in our circles especially, you know, it gets to be where everything gets, you know, degraded and downgraded and, and we're so negative about everything, right? I try not to do that. But I, I did hear the other day this advertisement on the radio. I often listen to Christian radio when I'm driving. And uh, I heard this advertisement where this guy said, you know, I just don't have time and my, my schedule's so busy and I don't have time to read the Bible. And, but I know I need to. Family's busy and time's busy. And then there was this announcement, well, we've got something for you. It's the daily bread. And here's what you read. I, I don't want to demean those things. I think they probably have a place. But if you're saying, I want to be like Jesus Christ and have Christ formed in me, and you're reading the daily bread five minutes a day, it's not going to do it. Because oftentimes when you look at those things, what you're looking for is, what does this have for me? Let me look at the index of my daily bread and see what it says about my marriage because I need help. What does it say about interpersonal conflict because I'm in a fight with a coworker? What does it say about how to handle my money because there's too much month at the end of the money? 
And oftentimes when we open the Bible and we read it, we have this approach. This is about me. It's primarily a manual to help me. And therefore, this is what I'm looking for. God, give me that verse that helps get me through the day. And all I want to say is if that's our approach to the Bible or even preaching in general, we've got it all wrong. That comes from a very self-centered heart that says, really, life's about my self-fulfillment. When what I really need to do is spend time in God's word repeatedly, soaking it in to see the glory of Christ, that he becomes so glorious to me in what I'm learning and knowing about him, that that's actually being reflected in me. And I often tell this to people. When you get this through your head and, and you get, get through your head that life isn't about me, therefore the Bible isn't about a self-help manual for me, but when I see it from the standpoint that I am to be made into the image of Christ and beholding him there, you know what begins to happen? My circumstances begin to change. My marriage gets better. My parenting gets better. The conflicts cease. I know how to steward God's things. Because the change is personal in Christ's likeness with me. And that's what's affecting all those other things. A.W. Tozer called this gazing on God when you open his word and you read it. When you get lost in the glory of God and gaze upon Christ and seek to know him, everything else seems to fall in place. And this is what the passage teaches us. We with unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord and we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God taking the Word of God to make us like the Son of God. And this is the process. This is the goal. My question is this. What is your part in all of that? Your part in all of that is a willingness to look in the glass, right? When I get up tomorrow morning, my Bible's not going to fly off the shelf at me, smack me in the face and say, read me. But there will probably be something in the back of my mind that says, you ought to spend some time. You ought to read God's word today. What's that? That's Satan tempting me, right? What is that? It's the Spirit saying, let's take the Word of God to make you like the Son of God. But my willingness to do that is very important. I've talked to people that, that find a variety of excuses for why that can't happen for them. Well, I'm just, I'm not a good reader. And I know people have reading challenges. I don't want to make light of that. But there are other ways to get God's word into you, even audibly in our world. Well, I just don't have time. Well, we all have the same amount of time. It's your choice as to how you steward it. But if we are ever going to be like Jesus Christ, this is the process. There is no other way. It's through the truth of God's word. The other thing I want you to note about this process of Christ-likeness is it's a community event. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. 
right? It's individual in that we must behold in the glass the glory of the Lord, we're being changed, but it's also a community event. We read this in Ephesians 4.13. Here's the goal. We all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature the manhood, the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. And then look at verse 15. Rather, we are to be speaking the truth in love, so we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. When it talks about speaking the truth in love, it's not talking about the apostles and pastors and teachers of verse 11. It's talking about the body. And it's saying this is part of our growth to grow up to be like Christ is when we speak the truth to each other. When we encourage one another in this way. And we strengthen one another. And we say don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Or, or here's, what, here's, here's what I learned about Christ through this. Here's what maybe Christ wants to show you in this. In the process of Christ-likeness, the church is the key. It's a community event. And so let's be committed to this as a community of believers, that we would speak the truth to each other. That means you have to know the truth. It means you have to show up to be spoken to. But if you're committed to Christ's likeness, you'll be committed to God's ways. So you see, beloved, we must recognize the possibility of becoming more like Jesus Christ. It is what God wants to do in you, and he will make it happen. We must know the process for becoming more like Jesus Christ. Individually, it's willingness to look and see where I find Christ and fellowship with him there. And as a community, I'm committed to speaking the truth with brothers and sisters so that we would all grow in this way. But finally, what is the proof? How would you really know if this were happening in you? What is the evidence of Christ being formed in you? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And Paul, obviously having established the church in Thessalonica, preaching the gospel, he wrote the first letter to them, and now he's following up again with another letter. And what I want us to note about Paul is just what he gives thanks to these people for. He says, this is what I see in you, and I'm thankful for it. And what Paul is saying is, I'm looking for this Christ-likeness in you. And here's how I know it's there. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. He says, I know this is working in you. I know Christ is being formed in you, and he gives two things. What are they? Your faith is growing. You know what that tells me? Christ-likeness looks like the ability to trust God implicitly. To trust Him with everything. Now just think with this. Think with me for a moment about this. How did Jesus trust His Father? Where did he show that? 
In a variety of ways, we could look at his human ministry while on earth, but I think it, it comes no more into play than when we get to his passion. And in particular, I want you to note what Peter says about this. We're, we're going to come back to 2 Thessalonians, but look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter is talking to believers that are suffering for their faith. They are under persecution, not because they've done evil and they're being reprimanded, but simply because they're doing good and they're suffering for it. And so he gives them an example in this, and he gives the example of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 21 of 1 Peter 2. Peter says to these believers, To this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you would follow in his steps. He says, here's an example for you, it's Jesus. I want you to be like Jesus. Verse 22, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued what? Entrusting himself to him who judges justly or rightly. Okay, here's the point Peter is making. He's saying, you are suffering as a believer, and it's just because you're a believer. And your tendency is to take matters into your own hands. That's not right. It is not right that you trample on my religious freedom. Obviously, they didn't have it in Rome, but I'm trying to put it in our context. So we rise up. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever defend that, right? But this is our response often. Someone is mistreating me. It's unjust. It's not right. I demand justice, and I'm going to enact the justice. It might look like this. You're driving on the way home on the highway, and somebody cuts into your lane and cuts you off. And you decide they deserve justice. I'm riding their tail for the next two miles. What is that? But kind of vengeance? That's not right. I'm going to show you. Or somebody at work you have an altercation with and they say something that's unkind and you say, well, here's what they deserve and I'm giving it back to them. I'm taking justice into my own hands. They shouldn't be able to get away with it. Well, what kind of trust do you think would it involve for you to actually bite your tongue or slow down and let the person over or actually do something kind to somebody that has unjustly treated you. That would take a lot of trust. Trust in who? What this passage is teaching us is that when Jesus was on the cross, he was being reviled, he was suffering, they were throwing accusations at him, he didn't respond in like fashion, but he trusted a just judge to handle that injustice. It says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Who's that? It's God, his father. And Jesus was entrusting himself that that was not his place to settle that score. But he said, God will do this. 
and it's in his hands. He could have called those angels, right, and wiped everyone out. But instead, he prayed for them, Father, forgive. That's implicit trust that God is the ultimate judge. He alone is wise enough and powerful enough to enact the right judgment. That's not my place. Paul says, I know Christ is being formed in you because your faith, your implicit trust in God is growing. It's maturing. You're less fearful and frightened about things. You're more at rest in your spirit because you've entrusted yourself to God's keeping and his care. And this is what it looks like to have Christ formed in us. It's actually the ultimate contrast between the first Adam in the garden who decided he couldn't trust God because God didn't have his best interest at heart, but listened to the deception of the serpent. And the last Adam who said, I will trust him even to death. Even my death is in his hands, and I rest my life there. There are people that have walked this earth that have demonstrated this kind of faith and this kind of trust. We have a whole chapter in your Bible that talks about this. It's people who have lived this way, and they've entrusted themselves to God. Do you know what chapter I'm talking about? Hebrews chapter 11. And it says, by faith, this is how these people lived. By faith, Noah built a boat in a desert. Why? Because he trusted God. Implicitly. This is what God says. This is what I'll do. By faith, Abraham offered his promised son, Isaac. Because he had implicit trust in the goodness and kindness of God. And when you come to the end of Hebrews 11, you don't need to turn there in chapter 12 and verse 2. It says, looking unto Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith, who is the, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it says that Jesus entrusted his soul to him. Because this is what it's like to be like Jesus Christ. It's implicit trust in God. Does that describe you? Is your faith growing like that? Back to 2 Thessalonians. Here's the other thing. Paul says, I know that you're growing in Christ's likeness because your faith is growing abundantly. You have this implicit trust in God and what he is doing. And secondly, because you love God. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. The faith is increasing, and the love for others is increasing. This is a growing trait, a willing sacrifice for the good of others. It looks like increased patience with people, an increased kindness toward people, an increased service toward people, an increased prayer for people. Because that's exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Does that describe you? 
And I look at Matt Fagan five years ago and say there's increased patience, increased kindness. Not always. But that's what it looks like to have Christ formed in us. Being changed from one stage of glory to the next. This is the proof. And therefore all of us, it behooves all of us to look for the proof of Christ's likeness in our life. Every believer, beloved, every single person here tonight who names the name of Jesus Christ should strive to be more and more like him. It's possible. It's in you. There's a process God wants you to engage in. Gaze into the glass. Spend time with Christ. Be among God's people. And see God increase your trust in him and your love for other people. Displaying Christ's likeness is the ultimate goal and it's the greatest thing in the world. Do you believe that? When I say what is the greatest thing in the world, what comes to your mind? The Bible says the greatest thing in the world is displaying Christ's likeness. That's God's goal for you. And when we do this, and Christ is living in us and living through us, it affects other people. There's a book that was written, it's called One Day in the Life of Ivan Desinovich Shukov. It's actually a semi-autobiography of a man by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn was imprisoned in a Russian labor camp after World War II because he started writing some critical things about his Marxist government, and therefore he was imprisoned for a number of years. He was released in 1953. But in his book, Solzhenitsyn describes Shukov, this inmate in this prison camp, and he's talking about himself and some of his experiences. And he says that Shukov sees himself as a moral man. He's kind as he can be in this bad situation, this prison camp. However, his primary motive is food. Because they would starve people, he would be kind and do anything possible just to get food. That was his motivation and his goal. But Shukov interacts with a minor character named Alyoshka. And Alyoshka is referred to as the Baptist. That's the only way that they refer to him. And Alyoshka is in the prison camp for 25 years simply because he's religious. And so Shukov kind of mocks the Baptist and his God, and he says, who is this God you worship? He can't even keep you out of prison. In fact, you're in prison because of him. There's kind of this mockery that goes on and people laugh behind their back. But the Baptist replies and says, you know, it's a blessing to be in prison, actually, because it keeps me away from the world and it actually strengthens my faith and heightens my spiritual sensitivities. This Baptist had a handwritten copy of the New Testament that he kept and he hid it under his bed every single night. And Shukov says he guarded it like like a treasure. 
And every single night he would be in that thing and guarding it and making sure that it was still there and no one took it away. Shukov noted eventually over time about this man that he is kind and he apparently does things for no selfish reason. He's not seeking self-advancement. Shukov knows his own heart. He does things for food, but he says this guy, he seems to do things just because he simply wants to do things for other people and help them. In fact, it gets to the point where, where Alyoshka is, is the only person trusted in the group because everyone knows he doesn't think about himself. He's thinking about other people. To add to that, he seems somewhat content with his surroundings. Near the end of the day, as the prisoners are working out in the cold, and there's a rather degrading responsibility that Shukov has to perform, and Shukov actually has the audacity to ask the Baptist if he'll do it for him. And he asks him, and Alyoshka does without argument. Solzhenitsyn writes in his book, he says, if everyone were like this Baptist, I would be one of them. What did Shukov see in that man? He saw Jesus Christ. Christ-likeness. And it was like a fragrant sense. It was refreshingly different. Unique. So much so that he said, I would want that. Now as you go about your day, in your home, your place of work, at school. Could that be said of you? There's this fragrance about your demeanor in your, your calm trust in God's care that negates fear and cynicism and being critical. There's a genuine love that is evident I think if, if we really gave ourselves to that, we would see a lot more people among us tonight. So would to God that this would be our goal and we would be like Jesus Christ and commit ourselves to these things. But we need God's grace to do that. So let's ask him for that now. Let's pray.